There are some people who say that everything is from me, while others say nothing about me. Who am I? I fill people and I indwell people. Who am I? Some people think that I'm only for new Christians and other people think that I'm only for these so-called super-Christians. Who am I? You can grieve me, but you can never see me. Who am I? Who am I? It's not a rhetorical question. Who am I? Who? The Holy Spirit. These few statements highlight that there exists so much confusion in our world about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. That was true in history, and it remains true today. Just go online and listen to different sermons and different prayers and even different songs that we sing, and it will soon show you that people are confused about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. I wonder if that includes you this morning. Some people have wrongly claimed that a certain act is an event or a result of the Spirit's work, and while others have, have failed entirely to appreciate the true and genuine work of the Spirit, and many others sadly and simply don't think about him at all. That's why one author wrote a book on the Holy Spirit entitled Forgotten God. He is the forgotten member of the Godhead. And if we fail to think biblically about the Holy Spirit, we misunderstand who he is and misrepresent what he does. And yet that's precisely what our whole series, our mini-series, has been challenging. It's a series that has called us back to the Bible, encouraging us to stop bringing our expectations to the text and rather allow the text itself God's word to teach us and to instruct us and to show us who God has revealed himself to be, Father, Son, and today, Holy Spirit. It's to allow the word of God to rebuke us, to correct us, and to teach us about the triune God. And today, as we consider the Holy Spirit, I want to transition from the Old Testament, where we've been the last two times, and move to the New Testament in John chapter 16. From John chapter 14 up until John chapter 16, Jesus has spoken at length about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, or to use his language, the person and the work of the helper. John 16 verses 4 to 15, our passage for this morning, provides a comprehensive summary of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. But notice that I said it's not exhaustive, it's comprehensive, meaning that it covers a lot, but it's not exhaustive. Because the other passages in the New Testament and in the Old Testament reveal and give us more about the work of the Spirit. So please bear that in mind as we read the passage and then notice some foundational truths about the Spirit. And I want, you, I want to invite you to stand. I know we've been, uh, we've been sitting for a little bit, so let's change our position. Let's all stand together for the reading of God's Word, and then I'll pray. And then we'll notice five foundational truths together about the Holy Spirit. John 16, on the second half of verse 4, Jesus said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. 
Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Amen. Spirit of God, we thank you that you're here with us, that you're in this room, not in a general sense, but you're personally within us and indwelling us as believers. And we thank you for your ministry of conviction and opening our eyes to understand truths about Jesus. That is not about you, but it's about Jesus. And that's our prayer today, Spirit, that as we as we look and try to understand biblically about your person and your work, that through that you would show us Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You can take your seats. So the question we have before us is who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? And I believe in our passage this morning we have five foundational truths about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's not exhaustive. There are other passages, but this passage specifically reveals to us five foundational truths about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Notice firstly that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person unknowingly or unintentionally all of us at some point have referred to the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force or power. It could have been in conversation, it could have been in prayer, it could have been a slip of the tongue, it could have been in song. Some of us refer to him as as, as an impersonal it. And yet Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit as a person. Look at the end of verse 7 in John 16. But if I go, I will send him to you. And again at the start of verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict. Not when it comes, but when he comes. And in these 12 verses alone, Jesus has 12 uh, masculine personal pronouns, all of which refer to to the person of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, Jesus breaks Greek grammatical rules to do so. Now, this is an international church, so many of us have experience or continue to have the experience of learning a new language. And most languages, apart from English, most languages follow the rule of agreement that gender, masculine, feminine, neuter, uh, uh, person, uh, first person, second person, third person, or plural, singular or plural, that they all must agree together. We're all familiar with that, I believe. And that's the same uh, of, of, of Greek in the Bible. 
the word spirit in verse 13, the spirit of the truth, is in the neuter gender. And yet the pronouns referring back to the spirit of truth are masculine. So Jesus breaks this grammatical Greek rule. Why? Was Jesus uneducated? Was he unaware of what was happening or what he was saying? No. He was simply referring to the spirit in the correct way. As a person. And not only does Jesus use personal pronouns to describe the Holy Spirit, but he also describes him as completing personal tasks. Look at the middle of verse 13. Whatever he, notice the masculine personal pronoun, whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Spirit hears, the Spirit speaks, the Spirit declares. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told that people can lie to the Holy Spirit, that we can grieve the Holy Spirit, that, that, that the Holy Spirit spoke to the early church, Acts 13, and said, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the mission that I have called them to, that the Holy Spirit makes intercession for believers. The Bible consistently, over and over again, uses words and phrases reserved for people to describe the Spirit. Why? Because a force can't hear, a force can't speak, but the Spirit can precisely because He is a person. He is a person. Now, I've said already, I don't want to go beyond uh, John 16 much this morning, but I think it's important to do so, to stress that, yes, the Spirit is a person, and yes, the Spirit is fully God. Just as the Father and the Son are distinct persons of the Godhead, so too is the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 to 4, show that to us. It should be on the board behind me. So Acts 5, just read along with me. Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Verse 4, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Notice this, you have not lied to man, but to God. Verse 3, you have lied in your hearts to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, you have not lied to man, but to God. How can that be true? Because the Holy Spirit is God. He is the third person of the Godhead. Now, you may be thinking, well, Alex, that's, that's really nice this morning. Why make such a fuss about this? Because surely it does not matter how we refer to the Spirit. But it does. You see, God has revealed to us exactly how we should describe him. And if we refer to God then in a way contrary to how he has revealed himself, we are not referring to the one true God, but we're referring to a God of our own imagination. A God that we have invented. And in doing so, we are actually breaking the second commandment. It's that serious. Do you follow that reasoning? If God has revealed to us how he should be worshipped, how he should be referred, what he has done, and if we refer to him in a different way, if we worship him in a way contrary to what he has said, what are we doing? We are worshipping and referring to a God of our imagination. 
Because the one true God has revealed to us who he is, what he has done, and how he should be approached. You see, all of the Bible, including its pronouns, topical in the 21st century, including its pronouns, has been breathed out by God. So we honour God when we address him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the way that he has revealed himself to us through his word. And that includes by referring to the person of the Holy Spirit as just that, a person. And that's the first truth that we notice. The Holy Spirit is a person. Notice secondly, from our passage, that the Holy Spirit continues the ministry of Jesus on earth. The Holy Spirit continues the ministry of Jesus on earth. When you read any portion of scripture, you must read it in its God-given context. It's, it's mentioned in a context because God has allowed it to be mentioned in that context. So in your personal Bible reading, always come to a text and think context, context, context. And the wider context of this passage is the farewell discourse where Jesus is preparing his disciples for his soon departure, referring to the crucifixion and then his ascension to heaven. It runs from the middle of John chapter 13 until the middle of John chapter 16. And in it, we see Jesus tenderly speaking to his 12 disciples and preparing them for his departure graciously reminding them that he has provided for them. While Jesus was with his disciples on earth, he acted as their, as their shield, as a, as a buffer for them, as a, as a shock absorber. So when someone criticized the, the disciples, Jesus stood in and protected the, them. He, 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 he shielded them and covered them from the hatred of the world. But now Jesus has been telling his disciples uh, that, that he will soon be leaving them. Again, referring to his crucifixion and to his ascension. A truth that made them scared and it made them sorrowful. Verse 6. So when we read in verse 4, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. We should immediately ask, what things? What things will the things that have come before this verse, again, think context. From the middle of chapter 15 up until verse 4, Jesus has been teaching his disciples and telling his disciples that he is soon going to leave and they will be persecuted. They will be hated by the world because the world first hated Jesus. That they will now experience the full hatred of unbelievers because Jesus will no longer be physically present with them. But, and here comes the but, they shouldn't be sorrowful or afraid because Jesus has provided for them. Cast your eye down to verse 7. Jesus says to them, again in that context, he's leaving, they're going to experience hatred. Nevertheless, but... I tell you the truth. It's a truly, truly statement. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Yes, they will face hatred, but they won't face it alone because the helper will be with them. Who is the helper? He is the Holy Spirit. He is the Holy Spirit. 
The word literally means one called alongside someone. One called alongside someone. And different English translations use many different words to try and capture and uh, summarize the meaning of this word. It's, it's a word that's borrowed from the Greek legal world uh, of, of, of someone who was called alongside um, to, to defend and to fight a case and to represent someone legally, an advocate, as the New International Version says. But Jesus' description here in John uh, 14 and 15 and 16 of the work of the Holy Spirit isn't restricted to the legal uh, world only, So that's why the King James Version has used the word comforter. Comforter. The Christian Standard Bible, perhaps you use that, chose the word counsellor. And the English Standard Version, which I read, has gone with helper. Advocate, comforter, counsellor, helper. Which one's right? Well, I think all terms are appropriate. Why? Well, Look back with me for a moment to John 14 and verse 16. John chapter 14 and verse 16. It should just be um, a quick turnover in the page. John 14 verse 16 is where the term was first used by Jesus. And Jesus tells us in John 14 and verse 16, And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Did you notice what the text says? Another helper. Not the helper, another helper. The Spirit is the second helper. So we immediately come and we ask, well, who is the first helper? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. And the Spirit's already been at work in this room this morning because I didn't know what was going to be read for, for, for our devotion today, for the Advent calendar. And we've already read this passage in 1 John 2 and verse 1, where we says that, but if anyone does sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, parakletos in the Greek, the same word used in John's gospel for the helper, we have a paraclete, an advocate, a helper with the Father, who? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus was the first helper, and now that he is about to leave, he promises his disciples that a second helper will come to them. So just think about that for a moment. What did Jesus do during his earthly ministry? For his disciples. Well, he did many things for them. During his earthly ministry, Jesus protected his disciples. He strengthened his disciples. He helped his disciples. He comforted his disciples. He taught his disciples. He counseled his disciples. And now in his his absence, are they going to be left alone to face the hatred of the world? No. Why? Why? Because another helper, the Holy Spirit, continues his ministry by protecting, strengthening, helping, comforting, teaching and counselling Jesus' followers. The helper continues the ministry of Jesus now on earth. So whenever we come into the book of Acts... Uh, there's, there's a discussion about what it should be called. Is it the Acts of the Apostles? Is it the Acts of the Holy Spirit? Well, in actual fact, it's the Acts of Jesus. Why? Acts chapter 1, verse 1. 
In my former book, I told you, O Theophilus, what Jesus began to do and teach. Every word is important. Began. Implication is carrying on now in this book, in Acts. So it's not the Acts of the Apostles. It's not the Acts of the Spirit. It's the Acts of Jesus by his Spirit done through his Apostles. The Holy Spirit continues the ministry of Jesus now on earth. What an encouragement that must have been for these 12 disciples to hear. What an encouragement. Just think about that. They're sorrowful, verse 6. And if they understood it, that the helper's coming. Wow. To hear that they wouldn't be left, as Jesus says in chapter 14, as vulnerable and helpless orphans. And Jesus' promise was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. You can read all about it in Acts chapter 2. When Jesus ascended to his Father, the Spirit descended and took up residence in the apostles and all subsequent disciples. And that includes you, and it includes me, if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian this morning, the Spirit of God currently and forever indwells in you right now. If you're a Christian today, you have the Spirit permanently indwelling you because the moment you receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, he immediately gifted and gave you his Spirit. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you are a Christian, it doesn't matter how mature you are as a Christian. You may only have been a Christian a couple of weeks. You now have the Spirit of God within you. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? That he is with us right now, not in a general sense, but in a personal sense, living and indwelling within us to help us. Right now, Christian, The living God is within you. Bookmark just dropped. It's a mic drop moment. Amazing. Right now, the Spirit of God is indwelling you. And what an encouragement for us. Because when you're attacked, he will protect and sustain you. When you are weak, he will give you the grace sufficient to strengthen you. He comforts and he... he, He counsels you with God's word. He assists you in telling others about Christ. He assists you with with inviting other people to come to our Christmas celebration. He helps you in prayer and helps in your place call out Abba, Father. It was to our advantage that Jesus ascended to heaven. Because only then would the helper permanently indwell God's people. What wisdom of God. The disciples and all of us wish Jesus was still here. And yet it was to our advantage that Jesus ascended so that the Spirit could descend. And when he descended, he continued Jesus' ministry on earth. So firstly, the Holy Spirit is a person. Secondly, he is a person who carries on the ministry of Jesus on earth. Thirdly, from the text... Notice that the Holy Spirit convicts the world. The Holy Spirit convicts the world. Now, there are many people today, perhaps even represented in this room, don't like to hear about the word conviction or sin and judgment. And yet, they are precisely words that the Holy Spirit focuses on. 
Look with me at what Jesus said in verse 8. And when he, the helper, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Let's slowly break the words uh, down one by one. The word convict, well, it means to expose and, and to declare someone as guilty. It's not, not a general conviction, but it's a personal conviction. A personal conviction that will either harden the heart of the sinner or lead them to repentance and faith in God. The foundational work of the Spirit of God is a work of conviction. Notice I said foundational, not only Because we know from this passage and from other passages that the Spirit gives life, that he illumines truth, he empowers disciples, and he transforms us into Christ's likeness. But all of this comes from the initial, the foundational work of conviction. You're first convicted, and then you're you're showing Christ and given faith, and then you're conformed into Christ's image. It's an initial work of conviction to expose, to declare someone guilty. Who is convicted? Well, Jesus tells us the world. Again, think context. Jesus is speaking in the farewell discourse to who? To who? His disciples, to the twelve. And he has just told them in chapter 15 that the world will hate them. The world being unbelievers. Now he says the helper will convict the world. Who who is the world? The unbelieving world. How will he convict unbelievers? Well, God has designed it in such a way that the spirit convicts through the preaching of God's word. Can he convict without the word? Of course he can. He is God. Does he convict without the word? Not always. That's why in John 15 and verse uh, 27... There's a close link between the spirit bearing witness about Jesus and the disciples bearing witness about Jesus. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The spirit works through Jesus' disciples. You see, disciples preach the word to the world and the spirit convicts the world through the word. That's God's design. Disciples preach the word to the world and the spirit convicts the world through the word. And what an encouragement that is for our personal evangelism, our personal outreach or our collective outreach as a a congregation here in River of Life. How people respond to the message of Christ, it's not your responsibility. Let me say that again. How people respond to the message you share with them is not your responsibility. So it automatically takes a massive burden and a massive weight off our shoulders. What is your responsibility? What is my responsibility? To faithfully proclaim God's word to them. How then are they saved? By the convicting word of the Spirit who takes the word and convicts the world because that's how God has designed it. And if, 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 if we reprogram our minds, it automatically takes the burden of us. Because how often I do this when I preach, I come away and say, oh, no one was saved. No one asked something about Christ. No one said anything. But my task is to preach in faith 
and faithfully, knowing that the Spirit of God will take the Word of God and apply it and convict people, either to harden the sinner's heart or to lead them to Christ. So what does the word convict mean? It means to expose. Who is convicted? The world. Unbelievers. How will he convict the world? Through the disciples. Disciples preach the word to the world and the Spirit convicts the world through the word. What will the Spirit convict them about? Well, Jesus expands upon this. Jesus gives us three things. First, he sin, righteousness, and judgment. First, nine expands upon the word sin. It refers to the specific sin of unbelief. The Spirit convicts unbelievers about their refusal to believe who Jesus is and what he has done on the cross. If you're not a believer this morning, the Bible is clear. By nature, you stand condemned. We all stand condemned before a holy God. Now, you may think that you're a good person, and you may uh, may give me many proofs how you're a good person, but by your very refusal to, uh, to, to, to believe in Jesus, you have rejected God's provision of a Savior, and in doing so, declared that you think you know better than God. Because God says in his word, you're a sinner in need of a savior. He has provided a savior. So by resisting him, by refusal to receive the savior, is to say you're better than God. The spirit also convicts unbelievers about righteousness. Righteousness is God's perfect standard represented in his sinless son. A standard which Romans chapter 3 and 23 says that we have all fallen short of. All of our good works, all of our good words, all of our good ways are totally filthy before God. The Spirit exposes our filthy deeds. And he reveals to us that, 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 that in and of ourselves we can never meet and match up to the standard of God which is found perfectly in his Son, Jesus. So Jesus says in verse 10 that the Spirit convicts of righteousness because I am going to the Father. In other words, the Spirit continues to declare what Jesus himself has been declaring. That you're a sinner before holy God. That your righteous deeds are nothing in his sight. So therefore you fall short of his righteous standard. So the Spirit convicts about sin. He convicts about righteousness. Finally, the Spirit convicts unbelievers about judgment. God's just judgment that is coming upon all sin. And again, this isn't me saying it. I'm I'm preaching the text. God's word, in fact, Jesus Christ, God's Son, says in verse 11 that the ruler of this world is judged. So what Jesus is doing in verse 11 to expand upon judgment is he's, he's... He's providing us with a, with, a, with a greater to the lesser argument. The ruler of the world refers elsewhere in John and in the New Testament to the devil, to, uh, to the prince of this world, to Satan. And he was judged and defeated upon the cross, Colossians 2. On the cross, Satan, the prince of this world, was defeated. So Jesus says that his judgment took place upon the cross... And he is the greatest sinner of all sinners. So how much more will every other sinner be judged by Almighty God? It's a greater to a lesser argument. 
The prince of this world has been judged. It's final. It's certain. So therefore, every other sinner will be judged. And again, if you're not a believer today, judgment is certain for you. Two things are certain in your life. Death and the following judgment. Judgment is certain for you and you will never and will not escape it on your own. So the Spirit convicts unbelievers, the world, about their sin, about their lack of righteousness and about certain judgment. And he does this primarily through the preaching of the word. But it's not a cause to despair. Rather, it's to lead people to repentance. This means then that the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is ultimately a work of love. You see, the Spirit reveals the sinner's sin to highlight their need for a saviour. The Spirit expresses and exposes their lack of righteousness to show them their need for the righteousness of God provided in faith through his Son, Jesus. The Spirit testifies to certain judgment to call on sinners to respond immediately. So if you're not a Christian this morning, again, I'm talking to you. What I'm saying is not unloving, but it's totally done in love. It's to tell you the truth that God's word, Jesus Christ, God's son, declares that by nature we all stand as condemned before a holy God. Not to share that would be the unloving thing for me to do. And against this terrible background of a lack of righteousness, sin and coming judgment shines bright the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ shines bright the good news that at Christmas God has provided a saviour for us, for you. John chapter 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So the question comes out to you this morning, unbeliever, have you believed in God's Son, Jesus if the Spirit is convicting you of your sin today, confess it to God and receive forgiveness by believing in Jesus. If the Spirit is convicting you of your lack of righteousness, receive the righteousness of God provided in his Son, Jesus. If the Spirit of God is convicting you of certain judgment that is coming, know that today, today is the day of your salvation. If the Spirit is convicting you, Respond immediately by believing and receiving Jesus. It's an invitation to come, to believe, to, as we say as River of Life, to come, drink, and live. Experience Jesus Christ. Experience forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of God, and safety from the wrath that is coming upon this world. And that's what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit is a person, The Spirit continues the ministry of Jesus on earth. The Spirit convicts the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Fourthly, fourthly, notice that the Spirit guides disciples into all truth. I wonder if you've ever wondered or thought about how the disciples were able to remember all that Jesus told them. 
Now, our pastor Sam has been going through Mark's gospel over the past month since I have been here, and, and each week we just see we see the disciples <laughs> just forgetting things, not understanding things. Last week, they Jesus is talking about his death and his resurrection, and they're fighting about who's going to be the best in the kingdom. They're they're just silly and they're stupid, and it's just mad. But how then did 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 we have? The go- how then do we have the Gospels and, and the letters? How then did they eventually remember and understand these truths? Can we trust the four Gospels? Can we trust the letters? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why? Because they are the product of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Truth. Look at verse 13 with me. When the Spirit of Truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Not a rhetorical question. Who is Jesus speaking to here? Who is Jesus speaking to here? His disciples, the twelve apostles. He's promising them that when he leaves, the helper will guide them into the truth. Notice that there's a definite article emphasizing that, that, that it's one body of truth is in view. The truth that Jesus has taught them while he was on earth with them. So correctly understood, this passage... Verse 13 is a promise from Jesus that the Spirit will bring to remembrance and make sense of all that Jesus had said in light of his death and resurrection. Jesus said it clearly back in John 14 and verse 26. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So brothers and sisters, we can have complete confidence in God's word, both the Old and the New Testament. Why? Because the author spoke, as Peter says in 1 Peter, the author spoke as carried along by the Holy Spirit. The New Testament is 100% reliable because it's the work of the Spirit of truth. John 16 teaches us that the helper guided the apostles into the truth about Jesus. So we can trust the New Testament and we can trust the Old Testament. We can trust the Bible. Again, context, context, context. That's what it means in its context. So you ask me, well, Alex, what about us today? Does the Spirit guide us into truth today? Yes. Yes, he does. Not new truth. Not new revelation, but he opens our eyes to understand the truth about Jesus as found in God's word. So often as you've got used to me over the past months, I'll come up and I'll pray and I'll say, Spirit, open our eyes, illumine our minds to behold wondrous truths out of your law. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, Paul says, Now we have not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us from God. J.I. Packer, uh, James Packer, in his classic Christian book, Knowing God, uh, says this, and it's just, just amazing. It should be in the screen behind me. 
To the apostles, he testified by revealing and inspiring. To the rest of us, down through the ages, to us as believers, he testifies by illuminating, by opening our eyes to behold wondrous truths out of God's law. The helper guides us into all truth by opening our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to receive. The Holy Spirit guides his disciples into truth. Fifthly, finally, and quickly, the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. In our world, there are a lot of fake things. Fake, if you don't understand me. Fake money, fake items, fake uh, people. And as a result, we have many different tests to, to try and discern what is right and what is genuine and what is fake and false. So for example, you go to shops, uh, it's happened to me the other day, and someone takes your money and they question how reliable you are by burning out that magic pen and scoring over the note to see what if this is a fake note or if it's a real note. And the same is true in the church. People claim that such and such an act is a genuine work of the Holy Spirit while you have other people at the back saying that's nothing what the Holy Spirit does. How do we know what is right? Well, here in John chapter 16, Jesus provides us with a simple test of authenticity, of truth. Does the supposed act bring glory to Christ? Does the supposed act bring glory to Christ? If it does, it's a true work of the Spirit. If it doesn't, it's not. It's as simple as that. Look at Jesus' words in verse 14. He the helper will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The number one task of the Spirit of God is to point people to Jesus, to honour Jesus, to bear witness about Jesus, to exalt Jesus, to magnify Jesus, to lift Jesus high. He is another helper who carries on the work of Jesus. He doesn't like attention drawn to himself. Rather, he pushes people to Jesus. He's like John the Baptist in a sense. He says, I will decrease so that Christ may increase. The helper uh, reveals people's sin. Why? To show them their need of a savior. Jesus. He reveals to people the righteousness of God provided in Jesus, he brings people to the cross where, 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 where Jesus defeated sin and the devil and death. The helper magnifies the person and the work of Jesus. He takes what belongs to Jesus and declares it to others. And I really believe, I really believe that if we as Christians and we as a church kept this truth at the front of our minds always, there wouldn't be nearly as much confusion about what the Holy Spirit does and who he is. If an act or a supposed miracle or, 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 or a word glorifies Jesus by representing his person and his work accurately, it is a true and genuine work of the Spirit of God. How do we know? Because the Holy Spirit lives always to glorify Jesus. And that calls upon us fellow Christians to, to, to continually grow in the knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Second Peter verse 3, as it's been shared. To know what honours him by knowing what he values, what he does and what he teaches. 
And maybe the reason you or I or we can't discern what a true work of the Spirit is, is simply because we don't know what Jesus values, does and teaches. The Holy Spirit lives and always glorifies Jesus. He hides away and says, look to him, not to me, but to him. Five foundational truths about the Holy Spirit. Again, not exhaustive. There are many, many more. But as as we come to a close, let me remind you of our overall application of this series. It's behold. Behold. It's a command that calls us to consider who we love and profess to worship. The behold God, I've said week in, week out, is like crossing the road. We stop, we look, and we listen to him. It's not to bring our expectations to the text and see if God matches up to them. Rather, it's to simply look at who God is as revealed in his word to allow information from the word of God to bring about transformation in the child of God. We have beheld our God, our saviour, and today I trust our helper, the third person of the Godhead who continues the ministry of Jesus by permanently indwelling all believers. He convicts the world, he guides his disciples, and ultimately he glorifies Jesus. So we leave now, I trust, informed biblically about the Holy Spirit with a longing to know and commune more with our triune God. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you are a God who has spoken and passed and revealed yourself to us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray, God, that this mini-series of just coming to your word and listening to you would help us, Father, to think biblically about who you are and to desire to know you more. We thank you for the Spirit this morning, for all that we have learned about him. And we thank you for his continuing work in our lives and in our world. And we thank you that he is our helper. And we pray, Lord, as we leave this morning, as we think more about him, his person and work, we pray, God, that ultimately we will think about Jesus, of his goodness to us, that when he ascended, he sent and gifted us with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.